Good evening, everybody. If you don't know me yet, uh, my name is Tiago. I'm an assistant pastor here, and I'm really glad to be able to talk to you uh, on part two of our series, Encountering Jesus. Um, I just wanted to start by checking your eyesight for a second uh, and your powers of perception. Uh, on the presentation up there, what do these three pictures have in common? What is peculiar about these three pictures? Any guesses? Anything peculiar about them? No guesses? This is different to youth work. Yes. They are. They are all dead. Sorry to start on such a note. Um, but these are actually people who have been embalmed for their funeral to look like they were doing the activity uh, that they would have done when they were alive. It was certainly a surprise for me to first discover that that was a thing in Victorian times, um, that people took pictures uh, with the dead as if they were living. Uh, and it was an even greater surprise to find here uh, that people still do that. Okay, um, We have uh, people in the church who are in the business. Uh, that's an idea, perhaps. <laughs> but um, what an even greater surprise would it be if we met someone who told us that we were dead, or somebody who told us uh, that we weren't even born, or at least not a second time. And instead of science fiction, actually, we find uh, that tonight Jesus uh, speaks in a challenging way to a religious leader who knows far less about God than he thinks he does. His name is Nicodemus, and he's, Jesus is going to tell him a few things from what I can see in this passage. He's going to say, Nicodemus, if you want to see God reign, you've got to be born, and born to new life, not just a new religion. If you want to have endless life, that you've got to believe, to believe in the one who speaks authoritatively, he has authority, and to believe in the one who saves the damned, uh, by which I mean the condemned. In our previous talk uh, on this series, Encountering uh, Jesus, we met Simon the Pharisee, and a nameless woman in Luke chapter 7, and we were challenged by the thought that Jesus was the forgiver of sins. Because this woman believed that she was forgiven much, no sacrifice was too much. And actually, when we read the bit just before John chapter 3, if you can glance at your eyes over that, uh, John 2, 23 to 25 you know, last time we had a Pharisee that invited Jesus because he wanted to set Jesus straight. Uh, here we have someone who comes in the cover of darkness. But you know, have you ever asked yourself, or have you ever had a friend who said, I would believe if only I saw a miracle or something like that. Well, the people in these preceding verses see signs, and yet Jesus doesn't seem to think much of their faith. In verse 23, how many people see the signs Jesus performed? Many people. And yet, he didn't think much of their believing in his name, because the next verse, 24, um, unveils that their faith, their trust, was a bit misled. Jesus can see these misconceptions in other people. It's like he has this spiritual x-ray machine, and he goes right to the point, which he will when he talks to um, Nicodemus. And so as we think about our first point, uh, if you want to see God reign, you've got to be born. 
Now, what is the greatest hope, I wonder what you would say, that someone can have in life? Uh, we can have aspirations, maybe to be a better person morally, uh, or to develop a, a skill set, to be a well-rounded person. The previous school that I was a schools worker in, their motto was, aspire and achieve. Um, there was a little article where they asked um, 1,200 people that question, and, uh, and the article was entitled, Top 10 Things People Want the Most But Can't Seem to Get. And they were, happiness, money, or enough of it, freedom, or to feel free, peace, joy in relationships particularly, a, a work-life balance, fulfillment, knowing that they're using their potential, confidence, stability, and passion. And there's a sense in which, whenever we read an article like that, we find that we're not satisfied with things as they are, are we? And we haven't been since it all went wrong in the Garden of Eden. Lord Tennyson actually expresses this longing when he says in this poem, Oh, for a man to rise in me, that the man that I am might cease to be. Our lives, I think, are marked by discontent, aren't they? And actually, believers in the Old Testament had a form of holy discontent. In this form of holy discontent, Jesus expected Nicodemus to know. Imagine that you're a Jewish person reading these verses before Jesus has come. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you, says God, uh, are to be on your hearts. Let's say that you are a devout believer in God's word. It's before Jesus has come, you are reading these words. How do you feel? How are you getting on with love the Lord your God with all of your heart? How are you managing these commandments on your heart every day? It seems to me that anyone who uh, was wishing to love God, they would have uh, constantly stare at their own a lack of ability to do these things in the face. And they would have longed to be better. They would have longed to be changed. And we're going to park that on the corner uh, for a second while you meet Nicodemus. You know Nicodemus, don't you? He is uh, a well-known Bible teacher. Uh, teacher of Israel, Jesus calls him in verse 10. He's famous. Uh, you and I might read our Bibles regularly, while Nicodemus can read it in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. You and I might sometimes have difficulty with a few tough questions in the Bible. Uh, Nicodemus, if you ask anybody, I've got a tough question. Who should I ask? They'll say, Nicodemus. I might be an assistant pastor. You might run a ministry in the church. But boy, Nicodemus was on a different level. John 3.1 says he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a ruler of the Jews. This court of law where scholars would weigh in with their biblical knowledge. Goodness, even his name is amazing. I don't know if you know this. My name, Tiago, comes from Jacob. It means a cheat or a heel catcher, right? But my wife will set it straight and tell you that's not true. Um, but Nicodemus' name means conqueror of the people. How many PhDs would he have if he lived today? How would we address him? We might say, Reverend Professor Doctor, maybe. All this to say, if anybody had credentials to speak about the God of the Jewish people, it was Nicodemus. Unlike Simon the Pharisee, he chooses to come to Jesus He's not so proud. He even calls him rabbi. But this big shot comes to Jesus when? Verse 2. At night. 
Scholars disagree on why he does that. Maybe he just had been working all day answering questions and he only had evenings free. Maybe he was a little bit embarrassed to be around a lesser teacher or rabbi. Maybe he just didn't want other people to know or think that he was more committed to believing in Jesus than he really was. But whichever way it was, we find that he wasn't committed to believing in Jesus yet, was he? But he addresses Jesus respectfully. And at the same time, we've got to weigh that uh, with this sense that he knows uh, stuff. Jesus, as we've seen in um, verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2, knows what is in each person. That section is there. Because in chapter 3, Nicodemus is one such man Jesus knows all about. Speaking of knowing all about something, uh, you know that I've only been living in the great town of Chesterfield for eight weeks. um, And living here has intensified my uh, longing to know more about one particular thing, gardening. I've been moving on. I've been on a journey as a a young man. I'm moving on from just seeing a garden or a forest to seeing specific specimens, you know. I no longer just look at a forest. I look at, can you see, the tulip tree on the far left there. Beautiful. Can you see the oak tree, the paperback maple? Okay, can you see the Norway maple, actually? There's a few specimens around this road. I don't know how often this happens to you, but just when you think you know something, you meet somebody who just unintentionally wipes the floor with you with their knowledge. I assume that means your reaction, that it happens to you. I discovered recently uh, a few people in my old church, uh, a couple people, who, I mean, they knew the Latin names, they knew the life cycles, the right time to plant, in other countries even. I was faced with my ignorance talking to these people. And it's kind of hard to forget, actually, what I know in order to be able to learn more. Uh, It's kind of hard to put myself in the position of a learner and not a teacher. I wonder if Nicodemus felt like that, speaking to Rabbi Jesus. Because he knew a lot, didn't he? Or did he? Look at what he knew. Verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, that God is with you. But then there's lots of things he hasn't understood. Verse 4, he's asking Jesus, but how does this work? And then verse 7, he's surprised at things that Jesus thinks he should just already know. Verse 9, he's baffled. But, but, but how can this be? Verse 10, he doesn't even understand the very basic foundational truths Jesus is telling him. You're a PhD and you don't even know about the new birth. Verse 11, when he does hear about God's kingdom, he doesn't accept it. And verse 12, he doesn't believe what he's hearing. It seems that this passage is telling us even the highest reverend professor doctor needs to be taught how to enter God's kingdom and to know God's love in the same way as everybody else. Now the Jesus who knows what was in a man's heart catches what Nicodemus gets wrong and moves the conversation to it straight away. Go back to what we said about having a holy discontent. What's the greatest hope that someone who believes in this Old Testament God could have? Isn't it to be with him? Isn't it to see him rule, uh, his loving rule, stretch across the universe? 
But for that to happen, it's up there on the screen. He needs to be born to new life, not new religion. Jesus could have said to Nicodemus, you just need to stop being a Pharisee and move on to some other ism, okay, than Phariseeism. But that would have just been a change on the outside. Jesus wants something deeper, a change so radical in his heart, in Nicodemus' heart, that it can only be spoken as a whole new birth. In other words, all of who you are being made so new that it's like being born a second time. I don't know if you know, but there's a little play of words as well in the Greek word anothen. Um, it can mean from above, meaning it's got to come from God, it's supernatural, but it can also mean a second time. And in verse 3, it's as if he's saying, Nicodemus, mate, if you want to see God reign, you've got to be born. And you've got to be born to new life, not new religion. That's kind of hard to understand, isn't it? Because we don't talk like that. When I was first learning English, um, and people used certain expressions, it, they just didn't click, didn't make sense to me. It's raining cats and dogs. <laughs> Why? Is it some sort of witchcraft? Black magic? You know? Or this person's cool as a cucumber? Well, I'd never eaten a cucumber before I came to the UK. But there we go. I didn't get it. And neither did Nicodemus. But he tries. He sees picture language. He tries to use picture language. It's something so radical that he thinks, can somebody go back to their mom, be born again a second time? In other words, can all of this broken me really be made new? And Jesus begins to connect the dots in verses 5 to 8. Let's explore these verses together. Because in order to enter God's kingdom, to see God's loving rule, to live with him and experience eternity with him, Nicodemus would have known from the Old Testament that he needed a life of saying sorry to God, of repentance for his sins. But Jesus goes a step further and says, that's not enough to make you fit uh, for God's family. What are the two elements in verses 5 to 8 that Jesus mentions? You must be born of water and the Spirit. It kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? Why should Nicodemus not have been surprised by that? For the same reason, I think, that you shouldn't be surprised when I ask you, what do these expressions have in common? Dead as a doornail, hobnobbing, gives me the creeps. Maybe you will have known they're both, uh, they're all expressions that come either from Charles Dickens or from Shakespeare. So Nicodemus, at the hearing of water and spirit, had go-to passages in the Old Testament that he thought, oh, I wonder if he means. What are they? Here are a few examples. Joel 2.28. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people, anticipating a time when God would live within people to change them. Here are a few passages from Ezekiel. Sorry if that's too small. I will give them an undivided heart, put a new spirit within them. I will remove from, their heart, from them the heart of stone, unfeeling, uncaring towards God, and give them a heart of flesh that pumps spiritual blood. Then they will follow my decrees. Yet again, there it is. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit in you. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. So there's a whole thing going on there where if you are an Old Testament believer, you anticipate a cleansing, a cleansing from within. 
making it possible for no part of your life to not desire to love God. Water, I think, don't, doesn't mean uh, baptism, but it's about this Old Testament idea of cleansing and of purity. And you put water and spirit together, you have Jesus talking about cleansing from impurity and a transformation of hearts. Did Nicodemus know these passages? I believe so. Did he have this longing? Absolutely. Had he put it together in the way that Jesus was thinking? No way. And I think the longing to be unbroken, to be remade, is everywhere in our culture, isn't it? It's in the songs that we sing, the movies that we watch, the books that we read. We long for our hearts to be unbroken, to be made new. Because when we look at our hearts, our thought lives, what do we see? How we answer this question is going to tell whether you get this whole new birth stuff. You know, think about, for example, there are films called Men of Justice films, classic action films. You know, so the main character is there. Uh, he struggles kind of with his past. Some decisions he's made, he wants to put it to rights. Uh, normally that's by killing lots of people. Uh, and yet he, see, he sees his heart as broken. He can't fix it inwardly. So he tries to fix it outwardly by killing other people and making people safe or whatever. That's the problem with fiction, isn't it? We want the hero to deal with the evil people. We want Batman to punish the jokers of this world. Superman to do away with Doomsday. Theresa May to deal with Brexit. Pick your favorite character. But what we don't want is to look inside our hearts and see the evil that is there and the change that is needed. Because when we take a minute to try to even try to live a good moral life, we discover that like Nicodemus, we need a miracle if we're going to enter God's kingdom. And here, I think, is when we glorify God the most. Not when we say, okay, I messed up. But when we say, I'm so broken, I so can't fix myself that I despair. I need God to come in and give me new birth. That's when we glorify God. This God who created humanity now creates it, recreates it from its brokenness in the way that it was meant to be. And he's the one who does this, not us. Do you long for that transformation? Have you already experienced it if you are a Christian? Has God begun to do in your heart what he speaks about in these verses? If you're a Christian... You have been born again. Your life is orientated in a different direction. You're a child of God because that's what John chapter 1 verse 12 says. Your family. You don't need to fear God's judgment. You can delight in God. You know that you're not going to lose your place in God's family because you failed your spouse, because you forgot that you were on a rotor on a particular day. But you can also understand, can't you, if this is true about the new birth needing to happen to everyone, that those around us who don't believe, our colleagues uh, at work who just don't get why you do the stuff you do as a Christian, that you understand it's because they've only been born once and their hearts are still of stone. Why are we surprised that other people don't understand or are hostile to Christians when here we learn that without a changed heart, they can't see God's goodness. 
However, if you're not yet a Christian, do you see that this new birth is into a new life? It's not about uh, being religious. It's not about just coming to church and, and serving the community. Um, it's not about how much of the Bible you memorized and how impressive you can be with that. It's not about how well you've taught your kids or your grandkids to be good and to behave. Or how faithfully, perhaps, you've um, not gossiped this week or talked uh, behind someone's back. It's not about those things so much as about a fundamental change of heart that God can do. Do you long for that if you're not yet a Christian? If you do, God has already been working in your heart. Take the step. Take the plunge. Believe. Because believing is how you get this new birth. But believe whom? Believe the one who can speak with authority about the topic. For many, for many people, it's kind of hard to listen, isn't it? When somebody says, you can only get endless life, eternal life, if you believe this one guy. Because there's so many other options out there, aren't there? You know, you may have heard uh, of this story about the blind man and an elephant. Anybody ever heard this story before? Uh, maybe in your RE lessons, uh, that might be what's going on, if not in your children's. The story goes a little bit like this. A man once asked his friend, why are there so many religions in the world? And their friend answered the question with a story. A group of blind men wanted to know what an elephant looked like. They found one, and each man zeroed in on a different part of the elephant's body. One found its side, and he said, an elephant is like a wall. Another one felt the tusk and declared that an elephant is like a spear. In turn, each one offered a different view of what the elephant was like. You can imagine the elephant stands for God in the picture. Holding the tail led to a comparison with a snake, at the knee with a tree, the ear with a fan, and so on. But none of them could truly see what God was like, the whole animal. None of them could really say. I believe, the man said to his friends, uh, that the blind men are like people who follow different religions. The moral of the story is no one can say... Here is eternal life, only this way, here's the truth. If people of all faiths believe this, we wouldn't have wars in the world. If, the, if we combine all our insights, we're going to arrive at the truth. It's an interesting story, isn't it? The man telling the story says that this story is a great picture of how we shouldn't be so full of ourselves. You know, perhaps like Jesus is saying here, eternal life only through me. But I want to ask that man, what about you? You told us that nobody can know what God is like, what the elephant is like. But you seem to. You seem to see the whole picture. At least the person telling the story, the observer, can know what God is like, can't he? He has a vantage point that no one else has access to. I guess it doesn't seem so wrong then uh, to be able to say other people can get it wrong. But what if Jesus has this vantage point? that no one else has? What if that allows him to speak with an authority that nobody else can have? What is Jesus' authority? Because you remember in verse 2, Nicodemus came along and he said, we know as a representative of a religious group. Now at verse 11, if you look, Jesus speaks because he has seen it. He's been there. How has he seen it? He's not just a man who's had a vision. He is God himself, and he can speak of things that Nicodemus and other religions today couldn't even dream of. In our elephant story, it's as if the elephant himself starts speaking and says, shush a minute, let me tell you about myself. 
Jesus is the God who says to blind men and women, you guys have got it wrong. Let me tell you, because I've been there, I've done that, and I've created the t-shirt out of nothing. But that's why we should trust him. But as we bring things to a close, where does that leave Nicodemus? Where does it leave us? It seems that he says, as you can see on screen, if you want to have endless life, you've got to believe. But believe the one who saves those who are standing condemned. We often have one of two reactions when we face a message like this, when we face the light. I think gardening reminds me of one of them. I'm really sorry about all the gardening analogies tonight. Um, but, you know, I continue to enjoy the gardening day, and I notice that there are lots of little creatures every time I lift a rock. They don't seem to like the light very much. You know, I discovered that one of my favorite little bug thingies can't even bear the scrutiny of the light. The, the fantastic woodlouse needs the moisture of the dark, the dampness of the dark, so bad that it would dry out and die otherwise. That's why they run a mile when I lift the rock. They just kind of, you know. That's not such a good reaction to the light, is it? To not be able to bear it. In verse 20, we want to hide from the light of God's word. Why? It's painful. When Jesus says, you need to say sorry for your sins, otherwise you cannot know my love. That's offensive to many people. They don't like the light. The other way that we can respond to the light, some of your parents of teenagers probably can identify with. If they've been doing this for a long time, when you arrive and it's like 9 o'clock at night, what can you see in your living room? Darkness. <laughs> Utter Darkness but a face backlit from a screen. And you turn the lights on, and we just kind of go, you know, the eyes hurt, the pupils hurt. But they might be glad that they now can be aware of other things that they couldn't say before when they were in darkness. If you're a teenager here tonight, forgive me. But in the same way, once the light is turned on, if Jesus says, if we understand his mission, why he's come, verses 16 and 17, why our situation is so bad, then we can either respond by believing. We're glad that we can ask him for forgiveness. We're glad that the Son of Man has come to be lifted up for our sins on the cross, or we can hide. At this point, verse 10, Nicodemus doesn't understand. He doesn't believe. But later, in John chapter 7, he sides with Jesus. Even later, he's hanging out with Joseph of Arimathea, who's going to collect Jesus' body from the cross, who is a follower of Jesus. Did Nicodemus understand later on? Did he become a follower? Was he a part of the family? I'd like to think so. What about you? As we finish uh, having a look at this encounter with Nicodemus, I wonder, have we understood that if we want to see God reign, we've got to be born again. It's not about a new religion. That if we want to have endless life, we've got to believe in that Jesus has the authority to tell us all about it. That he saves us and otherwise we would be condemned. I hope that if you're a Christian tonight, your heart has been warmed. Just by remembering, God brought you into his family. He did this. You couldn't have done it yourself. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope that this connects with your longing 
to be unbroken, to be made new, so that you take the extra step 